there's so many places you can go and you really can carve out a niche for yourself and you can take that determination, take the dedication, and it's not going to be weaponized against you. It's going to be your fuel as you can move through these different parts of business. What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Lydia Taylor, a freelance strategy director based in London. Lydia has worked in agencies, in startups, client side, all kinds of places. Today, we're going to talk about that because strategy is everywhere. But a lot of people are working out where on earth they can do it. Lydia Taylor, welcome to Sweathead. Thank you for having me. Exciting. It is exciting. It is exciting. You know, your generation, Lydia, your generation is spoilt. You have so many choices. Back when I was a young planner, there was like <laughs> one thing you could do and that was to be a planner. And in Sydney, I think there were like 30 to 40 planners in a city of four to five million people back when I was a kid. It might have been more. I don't know why I'm role playing. I'm trying to start aggressively just to shake the year <laughs> up. Lydia, do you realize how spoiled you are? Because we're going to talk about choices and you and your peers have way more choices than any generation before you. I do feel spoiled. The The funny thing is speaking to kind of older, we're not going to say old school, older people from the industry is that I very much at the beginning of my career, everyone would talk about like, oh, you know, it used to be so much more fun in agencies. It was all these glamorous parties and this very kind of different, opulent, you know, madman style life. But I think actually we are the more spoiled generation now, just with, as you kind of hinted to, the variety of places that strategy pops up. It is very much everywhere. It is. And, and by the way, older in the agency world, I'm going to make fun of this, is a 21-year-old talking to a 24-year-old. So I know what you're talking about. I know what you're it talking is. about. You know, and at the same time, the deadlines have shortened. Mm -hmm. The amount of work has increased. Probably the number of hours has increased. The amount of communication you know, we're not on facsimile or fax anymore mm. or Morse code, you know, a lot of emails and notifications and some strategy teams have to be on group chats with clients and so on and so forth. So more choices than ever, but really easy to feel overwhelmed. Is that sense of overwhelm something that you and your peers talk about? You and your young peers talk about quite a lot? Yeah, I think definitely. And it's something that's still very much present. I think when you look at the traditional and the bigger agencies is that idea of being kind of always on, you know, you're working with clients often globally, you're checking on at lots of different times of the day. And your campaigns obviously are, as you said, much more often, often 24 seven, we're not talking about just doing campaign spikes anymore. We're talking about always on paid and organic and campaign spikes, and we're doing influential, and we're doing all these different channels. So I think that idea of being overwhelmed is very, it's very real. It's very common. I think it, yeah. it's dialed up depending where you're doing strategy, for sure. Well, let's let's try to get a longish list of places in which you can do strategy. So back in the days when it was just called account planning, there was one place you could do account planning in this kind of industry, unless you had an MBA and you were doing more business strategy, or maybe marketing strategy, you could be a marketer. But account planning existed in advertising agencies that made television ads. <laughs> eventually, eventually, I'm going to say late 2000s, the noughts, digital strategy became a little bit of a thing. Right around that time, social media strategy became a bit of a thing. Where can people do strategy right now? What are the kinds of options that you've thought about or that you've probably talked to friends about? It's huge now, right? Because I guess you've got 
the big kind of multifaceted agencies that you've talked about, but then we've also splintered off into all these boutique agencies. So as you said, you can go into your social, your digital, your influencer strategy, you can go into, you know, gaming strategy specifically. I think a really interesting one that I've seen is obviously the pop-up of the the smaller studios and the breadth of work that studios do now. So even move, moving more into kind of um, product design, a lot of strategy going on in there of that kind of relationship and building the the relationship between the product and the consumer is very much a place where I see a lot of strategists moving into now. So much mm-hmm. more of a creation role. You've also got your your startups. So it's never been easier to start a startup, right? Even though the, the failure rates are high, that kind of barrier to entry is just allowed for this boom of all these different verticals of startups. And all of them require strategy, whether they kind of realize it or not. And when I talk about strategy in startups, I don't necessarily mean startups that have focused on communications, but actually just strategic thinking for the startup itself. So who are their clients? Who is their audience? What do they need to be talking about in messaging? What should their kind of offering portfolio look like? So startups are definitely somewhere where I'm seeing a lot more strategy going on. Interestingly, obviously clients, you've got that marketing side, but there's now also this shift in creative in-housing. So I've spent a bit of time helping clients set up their kind of in-house agency as they move away from the traditional models, bringing it in-house and having strategy actually embedded into the business, I think is also somewhere they're, they're popping up. And of course, platforms. So platforms are still a really interesting place, in my opinion, you know, obviously very politicized. I'm sure people have a lot of opinions about working at platforms. But when we're seeing TikTok is obviously sweeping through London at the moment, hiring massive amounts of creative strategists and strategists. Also, obviously, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, you've got Twitch is doing a great job on hiring at the moment. So really, I think it's interesting to watch all those platforms really get a grip of some incredible talent that's coming out of London and and the other big cities. Yeah, I guess agencies, smaller studios, startups, client side, in-house client side, and the platforms are the top ones that that I think have boomed probably since since your day at the beginning. Oh, that was my day. Come on, my day is still happening. I'm yet, I'm yet to have my day. Yeah, I, I heard Netflix has been doing a bit of a spree. They've been on a bit mm. of a hiring spree. We, you, haven't, you didn't mention management consultancies. And the thing about the social platforms and even the management consultancies, but also like client or brand side, is there are different pockets that strategists can fit into. They might go into the marketing arm, for example, of the management consultancy and help yeah. that consultancy market itself. They might go into, I guess, like the interactive or digital part of the management consultancy or the creative part of the management consultancy as they've been hoovering, vacuuming, hoovering up uh, creative agencies. Uh, and then in the social platforms, again, you could go into marketing of the social platform. You could kind of go into a bit of a like pre-sales role as well to help mm-hmm. clients understand how to use the platform. You might be temporarily in an innovation lab because all the social platforms temporarily have innovation labs and then they spin them out into something else. There's some kind of reorg. I think we've, or you have listed, there must be 15 to 20 different possibilities, right? Mm. And I think actually that the innovation labs is an interesting one because that's a, something I've only really clocked in the last kind of three, four years is also the boom in venture studios. So when you get your big, you know, your Barclays, your telecom brands, and they're looking to create a sub-brand and they're working with these venture studios, I think that's also a very interesting Mm -hmm. place for strategy at the moment. It's at the heart of that combination of service design and product and communication and brand all in this like lovely little project base. 
Yeah. When you're talking about venture studios, are you talking about a studio connected to venture, venture capital? So often connected to venture capital or they're kind of working specifically as like a miniature incubator for some of the bigger brands. Um, so invested in rather by the big brands themselves, but sectioning off that workload away from the core business, mm-hmm. I guess probably because it's a little bit safer to keep it pure and keep it, you know, agile and a bit more, a bit more comfortable in the risk if it's outside of the business itself. Okay. There's also, maybe this is more in the, I'd imagine it's definitely more in the US and, and more on the West coast of the US, but the ability to possibly do strategy for somebody who's a personal brand or a mm-hmm. creator, let alone for some of the talent agencies who manage massive talent and might might own somehow a lot of IP and trying to work out how to bring that IP to life in, in novel ways. Are there any more that we've missed? Research agencies, sometimes strategists yep. who want to do research and do chunky stuff disappear, not disappear, they appear in research agencies and kind of forgo the desire to be connected to some kind of creative output done by an advertising agency. What else? Yeah, research agencies definitely there. God, I think I've run dry with them now. We, that's a lot, right? I think we've that's got a, a lot. Point. <laughs> um, let's, 2008, you could be in an ad agency or a digital agency, honestly. PR agencies mm. didn't have strategists in the way that I talk about them or think about them. Uh, research was pretty separate. Uh, places like IDEO started to pick mm-hmm. up some people, but they usually wanted someone with like a design thinking background or a human computer interaction background. But that's a pretty big explosion in a decade, a little over a decade, right? You sort of focused on the ones that I think were most immediate in your mind. But if you had to boil it down to the three that you think are hottest, uh, as far as the people you talk to, your peers, which three kinds of company and also include the position in that company because the strategist could fit in lots of different ways. What are the three hottest? <laughs> I can't believe I'm asking you this, but I'm going to. What are the three hottest places for a strategist to work right now? The three hottest places? Well, I would say creative strategy inside platforms and to name names, I would say Twitch is probably the one that I'm hearing a lot of interesting stuff about. I think it's the reason that that's one of the hottest places is because a lot of bigger agencies haven't yet worked out what their approach is to these platforms. There may be a little, you know, they're still in someone's innovation budget. They're a 10% of a campaign. So they maybe don't get the kind of the focus that they deserve. So when you go as an, in as a strategist there, you're suddenly open to all these new tools and a real different plethora of clients who are very keen to do something completely new. So I would say getting into platforms as a creative strategist is super interesting. And also that you have the backing of a lot of the rigor and that planning part and that media part is supported by other functions which also allows quite a nice focus on you know creativity purest form yes and and like okay we're going to get into two and three but i want to talk about and we'll define some of these words one of the most common questions that is in people's minds right now is what's a creative strategist and i can give Mm. you sarcastic answers and real answers and lydia can as well (laughs) uh twitch i think there's a statistic floating around right now which is not just about twitch it's about twitch and youtube that more people spend time watching people play games than they spend i think watching like a lot of the streaming service providers combined and it's wow have you seen this statistic floating around? I haven't seen the statistic, but honestly, it's no kind of surprise to me. My partner is a big watcher of games. So I've spent many, many hours at the table listening to various people, whether it's, God, I can't even tell you their names, but playing away of COD or Fortnite or whatever those things are. So 
you know, I, I, it doesn't surprise me. And I think also, obviously, the streaming numbers went up massively over COVID and lockdown. And we saw the same with a lot of the, the gaming platforms. They're just very ripe for interesting creative at the moment. They are, they are. Yeah, for what it's worth, just to sound hip, Laserbeam, the Sidemen, Sun, Sundi, I think it's Sundi who does a lot of Among Us uh, stuff. And uh, there are a couple of others, but they're they're pretty big in our household. And I got <laughs> I got to say, being an Aussie a long way away from home, I don't mind having a little bit of laser beam on. It it brings me back to my primal Australian uh, male self. Um, creative strategy, Lydia, what is it? It, as you said, it's hard to define sometimes, but I would say that creative strategy is thinking about how you lose the platform that you have at hand to create cut through. So. I'm going to find it hard to define now. I would say creative strategy is leaving a lot of the kind of traditional planning rigor at the door and going in and looking at what are the interesting trends that are happening? What are the, you know, the movement of people and what kind of the creative availability of of software or features are on that platform that allows you to do something interesting. And I saw your your face change slightly when I said leaving the rigor at the door. But I think that that would be, for me, taking on briefs that are more on the creative strategy side. I see a very different approach. It's not so data-driven. It's much more kind of based in the real world of what's happening on these platforms. Totally, totally. Indulge me a little bit. Creative strategy or creative strategist, it's a land grab on the one mm. hand. It's like, I'm so special, I can do all these things. And it's also a way for companies to sneakily get people to do two roles, but to have one it person is. doing them. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. But you mentioned you mentioned before that the idea of having rigor available to you through other people and other departments. For a lot of account planners and strategists, that's a dream because a lot, mm. not all, a lot of account planners want to spend most time, I think, trying to understand the world and understand maybe platforms, etc., and then to work out what to do with them. And if you identify with what I said, first of all, you're a subset of the strategist and account planner. You're not all of them. But the thing is that if you identify with what I just said, there's a risk that you could go to a different kind of company and fail because that company might expect you to be super, super rigorous and to be really literate with numbers and all kinds of stuff and everything. And you're like, no, I, I want to come up with stuff mm. that's also informed. And so that to me is, you know, the whole creative strategist thing. I have an issue with the title only because <laughs> I think strategy is a creative role. So why do you have to put creative in front of the word strategy? That's my personal point of view. Okay. So other than creative strategy in platforms, what do you think is the second the second hottest job out there right now for strategists, Lydia Taylor. <laughs> so I think what you just said actually set up quite nicely what I would say the second is, which is going into startups themselves, so into small companies. I mean, I did it three years ago with a creative tech startup, going in as the eighth person there. And I think when you talk about rigor, this is where it's very interesting and you really see the difference between people who've spent some time in startups versus people who've kind of stayed in the larger agencies is that that reliance on frameworks and theories and really kind of thought through things kind of fly out the, the window a little bit with startups. And I think the real reason of that is that 
the tools that people use now are so kind of available and commoditized. So whether you're using Canva or you're getting into Google ads, you're doing Facebook ads, they've made these platforms so available that people can just kind of go on and start doing some stuff and see what works. So often going into startups, you're meeting people who have big ideas about what they want to do with the brand. They've started kind of throwing things at the wall and seeing what's working. So actually you can't spend you know months and months doing this very rigorous here's my strategy presentation and we're going to work it and sweat it until it's perfect because that's just not how they work so I think that that's a really interesting place because you really have to kind of pull up your sleeves and get straight in there and learn lots of different skills and different tools to achieve whether it's you know the strategy for them as a business or a communication strategy for the startup itself or whether they're jumping on behalf of clients so for me inside startups is a a hot place to be for sure yeah, there's just so much pressure to launch. You have to launch the next thing and you need just enough thinking to launch, but you're building the business. And that is definitely mm-hmm. something that I, I think if you've, if you've had a big role in a massive agency and been a bit spoilt by executive assistants or offsites or things like that, <laughs> it's, it's probably a, a bit of a coming down to earth to actually have to work differently where it's just enough thinking that gets you to a launch is what matters because you're building this business in, in real time. What was your favorite part of working in a startup? Wow. I think my, I, I, it was a very conscious move for me to, to move into a startup. I was working in a big brand agency before and I kept kind of being given a product on the brand side, whether it was a student bank account or, you know, another FMCG product that doesn't really have a USP. And I had this real urge of like, God, I would love to be closer to shaping what this thing is rather than having to solely spin the story around it. Right. So for me, my favorite thing being in the startup is very much being closer to the business itself. So understanding, you know, the the profit, understanding where we have to go from a business strategy in order to keep this mm-hmm. thing alive. It's, you know, it's high risk, hopefully high reward down the line. But that for me is the, the most exciting part is that you're actually finally at the point where you can shape the offering itself and not just the way it's communicated. And then I guess, you know, the other side of that is just having an investment in the startup itself. So often, whether that's an emotional investment or also potentially having like shares in the business, which is often common when you go into these startups, it's knowing that this thing really lives and dies with the team that's around you. That ownership Mm -hmm. and that pressure is a really great thing to bond people and have a really effective team because ultimately, you know, you're always doing it together. And if it doesn't work, you've got to shut the doors and go home. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then, Lydia, what is the third hottest job, according to you and the people that you know right now, for a strategist? The third hottest job, I would say, and it might not sound super sexy to people, but I think it's in-housing on a client side. I think there's an amazing opportunity at the moment of some really big, really kind of juicy giants that are bringing in their both creative and strategic and media operations into the client side. And it's interesting because again, you're, you're in that ownership moment. You're not kind of answering to clients in the the same dynamic you have with an agency client dynamic, but also they're really just keen to hear from people who haven't had a traditional marketing background, who haven't moved up from being a kind of brand manager and up through the ranks as such. So I think, yeah, client side in-housing is definitely an interesting one for people to be considering okay what's a juicy giant (laughs) 
a juicy giant. Well, I was working for Pepsi for quite some time. And I would say they're a juicy giant, right? Because you've got so many different elements of their business and they've got the money to do things, right? So they actually can invest in things when they believe in it. You know that there's not kind of large amounts of management fat being siphoned off from budgets. So they're really juicy in the sense that if they believe in something, whether it's creative or a strategy, they will put their money behind it. And that's a very exciting place for for execution especially and I guess I say it's not it's not sexy because previously I guess people say you know you work in agencies and then you go over client side when you're you kind of run out of steam and I think that's a really just not true anymore I think people go to client side because they see there's massive opportunity at the moment yeah the run out of steam there's definitely been a years of people probably looking down a little bit on people leaving the agency Mm. world and swapping the thrill for stability and also the swapping variety and novelty that you think you can get in an agency for working on the one thing whereas there's this risk I think that a lot of people feel that they're going to become more of a bureaucrat that sure in many parts of the world you might get a bit of your life back right Mm. and you're not necessarily pitching crazy weekends but you're going to give up the thrill and excitement and the rush for something that could be dull and then eventually dull you and then like, oh, I wanted to do creative work. But what I'm wondering is whether over the past five-ish years, whether the, the agencies have been so pillaged and so affected by margins. You know, there are a lot of really famous agencies in the US. I mean, I think Chris Porter in, in Colorado, is it's not many people. And it used to be one of the most famous agencies in the world. And there's articles coming out about how much it's shrunk and the challenges there. And it's hard, right? So I'm not picking on, on Chris Porter, obviously a very famous agency for good reason. But uh, I, I feel like the agency world's been so pillaged and that people are so burnt out mm. and also not necessarily making the great work that they would hope to, that it's opened the door to them being open to all the other options that 10 years ago, I, I don't think many people would have been because they would have feared that moving client side would have made them, and I don't like this word, but people use it, like turn them into a hack. Mm. Just someone who's like, not that great, just basically a bureaucrat. You really feel that it's not like that right now for your peers, especially? I don't think so. I think it's almost kind of the opposite in some senses where I think it's becoming even more apparent. And, you know, the joke is that when you're 40 in an agency, like you're over and you're basically ancient and you might as well pack up and go home. That's the joke. And I think everyone understands the the underlying tone, which is, as you say, they've been pillaged on budget over and over. So actually the fodder for a lot of these big agencies is young people. You know, it's, it's people coming in on internships, on grad schemes, and these kind of very young, determined and, and dedicated people. But the challenge is and is that determination and dedication when you're young it can actually be weaponized against you and I think that's something I kind of see often within agencies is that people have been giving so much and then they get to a certain point and they realize actually you know there isn't the opportunities for me here or the roles are very linear or I don't think I'm going to make it into strategy director into CSO and I think now people are just much more open to look across and see that actually in these big companies, whether you're looking at a PepsiCo or something else, there's so many places you can go and you really can carve out a niche for yourself and you can take that determination, take the dedication, and it's not going to be weaponized against you. It's going to be your fuel as you can move through these different parts of business. 
If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books, and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter-funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes, and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. Yeah, it's funny. By the way, being too old to work in advertising at the age of 40, um, is that really a joke? Lydia, I, like what's the joke? I literally was saw it on Instagram line? like two days ago, right? And you laughed, you laughed at it. So it was uh, to me, it's not just not that funny. <laughs> but it, it, it's fun. I, I just went out for a walk, and for some reason, I was thinking about getting older as I'm getting older. And this sort of image came to mind of just being shot up into space, where through your 20s and 30s, or at least I'll say me, me through my 20s and 30s, there's just this run and there's this rush and you're trying to get somewhere and you don't even know where you're trying to get, but you're getting older, you're getting older, and then you do hit your 40s in this industry and then you're just floating around in space. This was on my mind. And that's not an optimistic or a pessimistic way to look at it. The reason that I I sort of was thinking through this is because I think through your 20s and 30s, you don't really know what you want. Mm. You think you do. And a lot of people who do strategy and account planning work, we can have phases where we're quite arrogant, actually, (laughs) but you don't really know that much at that age, honestly, uh, or at any age. And, you know, if you're 80, still doing this work or doing anything to do with thinking, you still are going to know that you don't know very much. But you're in this mad scramble. And then what was that all about? So, hey, just wanted to leave that with you. Um, So you talked about creative strategy in platforms being number one hottest job right now for strategists. And the main reason there being that you can come up with stuff, like you can be creative as a strategist and also be close to the audience, right? So Mm -hmm. that was, that's number one. Number two, you talked about startups and being closer to shaping the business and also potentially having actual or just a sense of ownership of the business and kind of living and dying together and then moving brand side juicy opportunities a sense of ownership as well maybe literally with stocks or stock options Mm. but a little bit more control over your days when you think through your peers what are some of the common triggers of change and i'll give you an example to buy you some time 28 (laughs) do you think that's the trigger (laughs) It's a trigger for a lot of people. Do you know the funny it thing? Is. In I, I actually was twenty eight when I left and went freelance. That was the exact age. I mean, I think a huge one now for change has been COVID, and I know everyone's talking about it, and it, it seems like a generic answer. But I think the really interesting thing for me is just how much people are talking about ownership of their lives again and control, and actually being willing to take more risk because they can see that having that break and working from home and realizing this groundhog day and this monotony that everyone went through, they actually, I think a lot of people stopped and paused and went, oh, this could be me for another 10, 15, 20 years. So I think that definitely that groundhog day has made a lot of change in people and the the ability to go remote as well. For me, there was a really big shift when COVID happened. I saw a lot of friends who were freelancing suddenly kind of panic and jump into full-time roles. And I think the ones who did that did us all a massive favor because the pool suddenly shrunk so much that you've got the people who didn't do that, who didn't kind of cave to jumping into a full-time role and didn't give in to IR35, which is a whole you know challenge in the UK for, for freelancers. But they actually made the pool so much smaller that those who stuck around now have this great plethora of work across all uh, these places. Can can I can I just jump in on this and then I want to hear a few more triggers. So yeah. COVID, there's at least two things that it triggered. One is this existential dilemma. Is this really 
what I want the rest of my life to be about, no. And then COVID also triggered a fear of redundancy Mm -hmm. and some people jumped into the lifeboat and that meant that there were more opportunities for freelancers. And honestly, I I think that was true in the aftermath of uh, the dot-com Mm-hmm. bust around 2000 and various other things that immediately afterwards freelancers were I think doing quite well 2008 maybe as as well if you've got specific skills that people want what else might trigger someone wanting change like burnout bad experiences yeah burnout burnout is a huge one we live and especially my generation I think it's something that's been a sometimes a good thing in my personality and sometimes it's a detriment but I'm a very kind of temporary person I like to get into things get out of things quickly I follow it's probably just having you know dopamine sourced into my brain right from such a young age tapping all these screens but I think that's definitely had an impact now is that the idea of slogging something out and looking and saying you know five six years in the future maybe 10 years actually I might be the head of department strategy And then you stop and look at that person and you think, God, they look exhausted. Like, I don't know when they last saw their partner. They don't come for drinks anymore. They're so busy. So I think that's a massive one is that we, the younger generation has a much more scrappy, I guess, and fast tracked brain. We want to find shortcuts and with strategy, with this array of different places that you can work now and people who are willing to take a punt on trying different things, whether that's in startups or other places. But I think now people are going, how can I just get here quicker and looking up to the the roles they used to crave and going, that's not, that's not me anymore. There's something to enjoy and then also to point out that's not great about that mentality. You know, like if you want to get good at anything, there are no shortcuts. Mm. And the thing is, if you wanted to create a business selling people shortcuts, you could do that and it would probably do better than selling a business that sells long cuts. But that shortcut <laughs> thing is kind of crazy. I want to give you an actual joke, Lydia, because I just, I just don't think turning 40 and aging out of advertising <laughs> is very funny. Uh Something that's closer to a joke would be me reflecting on how you use the phrase temporary person. And then I would say to you to be funny when you're not a person, what are you, Lydia? Hilarious. See, that's, like, that's like funny. <laughs> that's funny. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, and I don't know how we've like, I, I, maybe because of how we spoke beforehand, we've definitely put a bit of age and generation talk into this, but it, it's totally cool because, you know, I'm still 29 years old. Um, the thing you mentioned earlier about people looking at their bosses and saying, I don't want to be like that. I've heard that so many times for so long. Mm. And so if you're listening to this and you're a boss, people are watching and a lot of them don't want to be like you. So careful how you go about your work because maybe just your vibe is going to turn people off from pursuing what what you are, which means they're going to leave. And I, I mentioned babies and maybe having a sick parent or loved one or getting sick yourself could be a reason to change change in immigration status could be a reason to mm. change what what else have you heard is there, is there anything that we haven't talked about i think the the remote working thing is definitely obviously triggered by covid but okay. that shift in general to remote and probably more project-based work is a change that i see a lot of people going after now it's like you know why do I need to sit in London anymore when actually I could go and sit in Barcelona or Lithuania or I could go actually anywhere with this work? So I think the digitization and the um, probably started by a lot of clients looking for less retainer-based approaches, right, in commercial models. I think a lot of people are going, a lot of clients are saying, we actually want to do more project-based stuff uh, and therefore we can pick and choose people to actually get the best team. And therefore a lot of those teams don't need to be 
sat in the same place. So I think that kind of digital shift is definitely a trigger for change. And, you know, you see it all over glamorized all over YouTube and, and Instagram. And I think people look at it and say, yeah, I want a piece of that now. Okay. Okay. What might've been the biggest trigger for you to have moved around? It's a good question. I think interestingly the work that I do now is very similar to the work that I did at the beginning of my career which is a lot of direct comms a lot of kind of end-to-end customer journey from a direct point of view so whether it's app communications or email a lot of that like nurturing of relationships through digital with growth and retention of, of customers is kind of what I do now and it's very much where I started back in Wonderman got a long time ago. I think the shift for me has always been, if I'm honest, a little bit ego driven, a little bit of how can I get closer to the big decision. So back then I thought, you know, I'm only making email comms. This is all behavioral stuff, but it's on such a minute level. It's not interesting anymore. So I wanted to jump to the big brand agencies where I saw these amazing ideas coming from. I thought, oh yeah, I want a piece of that. Then after doing that for a while, I thought, actually, well, there's way bigger decisions happening. There's these big business decisions that happen before they get to anything near us. So jump to the startup. And then after, you know, an amazing three years there, it kind of came back to actually, I want to get back down to the real nitty gritty of shaping how someone acts again. So it's been an interesting cycle, because I think if you'd said to me, oh, you know, you'll actually really enjoy doing this kind of life cycle marketing stuff that you're doing now. I would have laughed because I wanted the big, you know, the can lions. And But once you've done all of that stuff, you look back and go, actually, that, that hasn't been the most interesting projects that I've worked on. Yeah. Can you think of a name for this cycle? Because it's not uncommon. I spent some time doing UX and IA, information architecture, and also sending a lot of emails to people. And one of my favorite things in my early 20s was looking at the statistics as people opened the emails. Mm. I still enjoy that. Like I, I enjoy the immediacy of the interaction that I couldn't ever really get very close to in a big agency. And also a lot of people who kind of move up into management roles, they're like, you know what, after a couple of years of this, I, I want to do, do the work. Mm-hmm. And so they might sort of col- col- collapse is maybe the word. They collapse this big ego thing that they sort out into actually just being closer to the work. What, what would be a name for this cycle? Maybe it's like, maybe it's the humbling cycle. Maybe it's the humbling cycle that you, you know, at the beginning, you know, nothing, you don't have the arrogance, you're just picking through trying to learn bits, and then you strive for the better and the better and the the bigger awards and the better recognition and saying to your mum, like, oh, I made that TV ad. And then you start to realize that actually, you're not enjoying it as much. And you're working all these hours. And maybe you get humbled back to actually, I want that tangible impact I want to see impact again I want to see something I do directly and quickly happen and shape something that you know whether it's comms or an action that somebody else takes maybe it's the humbling cycle yeah yeah I like that it's but it's it's tangible it's touching Mm. it's direct the thing I did affected people relatively immediately maybe it's like the re the re-humbling or maybe the retouching yeah the retouching I don't know but it's (laughs) It's, it's a thing. And I think putting language to it's, it's kind of, kind of useful. One of the questions that I think is quite natural for people who are aware of all these choices, who, who are perhaps a little bit frazzled, a bit burnt out, a bit scared, maybe got college or university debt in very various parts of the world, maybe got dependents, et cetera. One of the big questions is like, 
how will I know that this move is going to be the right move once I've even decided which move to make? Mm. You know, it's like there's this cluster of questions that often appear in one very long question. So to pull them apart, how can somebody work out the best type of place for them? And I'm using the word best in a way that is not natural to me. I'm, I'm trying to be dramatic. How can somebody work out the best kind of place for them to go if they have some of these options? Yeah. Do you know, I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago, which was called How to Quit Your Job as a Strategist. And it was it was very much around that. And it was working out what your next step should be. And honestly, I think sometimes you're so busy with work that you forget that the skills that you use on your clients day to day are the exact same skills you need to use on yourself. So I have always gone back to like a very simple SWOT analysis. So really identifying, you know, what am I enjoying about my current role and what's missing and what opportunities do I have and what's missing and going through it quite in a method driven way. And I mean, I did this all the way to, I actually met the founder of my last startup at a jobs fair and I took this piece of paper. And one of the things that I had as my needs is that like, I need a better salary. So from the very beginning, I showed very honestly like this is my SWOT analysis of what I need from work and let's have a conversation around this and if there's things on here that you fundamentally can't you know won't happen in my role or you can't kind of make work for me then let's just have open conversations so I really think when finding your next role the most important thing is is honest open conversations and not being scared to have conversations. I speak to people, you know, week in, week out, we have a chat and we think, is there some fit here? And then often we decide there's not a fit here. And I think it's just getting comfortable with that. The worst thing you can do is jump to something else in a kind of panic to get out of where you are because you'll just end up treading water at the next place. So really taking that time to sit down with yourself and you know, go internal and think about what is missing in the situation that you're in, whether it's practical things like, how many days a week you work or your salary, or if it's real kind of emotion driven things. Like I know I need a little bit of ego stroking. I know I need people to recognize me. So I can't be in a ginormous business where I'm like just another cock. It doesn't work for Mm. my personality type Mm. and be honest about it and lean into that and don't say, Oh, that's something I have to change about myself. Cause often you, I think you can't change some of those things. You need to turn them into your strength. Yeah, SWOT analysis is really interesting. And and, and I, I think there's two things to point out. One is just getting yourself onto a piece of paper, you might discover things that are true inside of you that you've been holding back mm. because you've been waiting for someone to kind of agree with the thing that you've not yet said. So that is useful stream of consciousness, getting your stuff down. You're still going to make an unemotional decision, right? Research suggests you're still going to mo- make an emotional decision. But I, I think you use the word honest, like be honest and, and like have honest conversations. But I think what you were doing with that SWOT analysis is more specific than that. You're giving people something to reject. Mm. You're like, here's, here's really what I'm about. Do you want that? And to me, that is a form of honesty. But you're, you know you're running a risk. And the risk is that they're not going to say yes to you, but that you're okay with it. And I, I just feel that that is a more honest way to talk about honesty. Mm. So I think that's, that's super interesting. Another question uh, that can appear is like, how will I know that this is the right place before I have joined it? I've said yes, or I'm Mm. looking at two options right now. How will I know that it's going to be what I need right now? I think a really great tactic that I've kind of done a few times is to try and speak to someone um, who's been there before. 
that's like a real and not someone who's there at the moment so that that's something that I often do is find like the person on LinkedIn and it sounds weird but I think actually I'm sure with yourself and definitely with myself if someone messaged me on LinkedIn and says hey I just want to talk to you about this thing for 10 minutes and I'll you know fit a time in your diary when it works I'm more than happy to speak to people so I've definitely done that many times where I'm thinking about a company that looks interesting and I'll just find someone who used to work there and message them and be like can you give me like give me the real deal give me the honesty because I trust I guess other people's opinions and Otherwise, you're never really going to know. I think you're never going to know 100% because radical honesty is not something that goes on when you're trying to hire someone, right? But it's that combination and also what you said about giving someone a choice, giving someone something to reject. That's part of bargaining, isn't it? Is that If you're not willing to walk away from something, then you're never going to get exactly what you want. You're never going to win that, whether it's in a relationship or whether it's in trying to get a job. Mm-hmm. You have to get to the point where you say, I need this or I'm not here anymore or I need this, or I'm not going to go for it. I love that. I love that. There's a quote that's sort of, I don't even know where this comes from, but there's a quote about how if you're unhappy in a small house, you'll be unhappy in a big house. Mm. And the thing is, I don't know if you identify with this, but you know, I've moved to around a bunch of different places. I get restless. I don't really identify as an employee. You know, I'm an independent spirit, spent a lot of time growing up by myself, just doing what what I wanted, ran a magazine. If I wanted to publish an issue, I published an issue and then tried to work in more of a corporate entity, but found myself just getting frustrated because I was away from the decisions and the things that were in public that I had spent a decade plus doing. My word is probably restless there, right? Mm. What have you identified in yourself that is kind of at the essence of you that happens, good or bad, wherever you've worked? Restless to me is not a positive or negative word, Mm. right? And you don't have to choose a positive or negative word. But what's the essence of Lydia Taylor that you've come to understand because you've moved around? I think you know, as much as I say the the temporary person thing is if you, you say good work in the mirror three times and I'll appear and do your strategy. I think that awareness of, of needing some form of kind of ego recognition, I think is definitely a part of it. But also that I think I'm quite a, I'm an idealistic person. So the, the pattern that often happens is that I jump in and my work very much used to be my whole identity. And, you know, I have to be in it. I can't work somewhere to do it nine till six and go home. That's not how I work. I have to be invested and I have to believe in what we're doing. So I think that's really been a a theme for me is that it can be a cultural shift that happens or it can be a shift in the the work that I'm doing. But the minute that I kind of lose the the heart-shaped glasses and don't see that kind of emotional toggle anymore, then... I think that's that's the pattern. That's when I jump ship. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't life be easier just to turn that off? Yeah, it would. And I think it comes with age, right? So I think as I've got older, I've <laughs> you're laughing again, but as I've got older, I think I'm waking up to you're talking about age. Oh my god! <laughs> but it's true. I think as you move through life, you don't need your work to be your identity anymore. You kind of build lots of other things and realize that you find joy in lots of other places. So I think actually maybe there's a certain trend for certain people. That... <laughs> oh, this spoken like somebody who's not very old, Lydia. <laughs> really? So, so you think the aging process is that you just find joy 
in all kinds of nooks and crannies of the universe. You think that's what it's like? Maybe to get I'm older? just really enlightened. I don't know. <laughs> no, I just think I just I'll think ask, you don't I'll, have to. I'll ask all my married friends with kids, and and then share all the research about what it's like to hit your middle midlife. People, when they're older, older, seventies, eighties, report being happier and finding joy in various places. Yeah, but yeah, there's a whole. There's, you got a few decades before you reach that. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm going to be on a big slide downhill, aren't I? In the next 10, 15 years. Yes. It's going to be a horrible time. I feel like I have to commit like age-inspired revenge on you for keep point, like, pointing at your age all the time. Um, no, I, I hear you. Ego, okay? What do you've used the word being uh, ego-driven or acknowledging your ego. What do you mean by that? I mean that no, genuinely nothing gives me greater joy than when I do a presentation or I finish a strategy or something and the people that I've worked with have just been like, that was awesome. Like, you killed that in every single sense. Like you delivered exactly what we wanted and went above that stuff. Just, you know, it's probably some sort of deep childhood thing that we haven't talked about. But I think that recognition really, like it makes my day. It's a, it's also a bit of a yeah. service thing. I like making other people yeah. happy. So I, if my client is like, wow, that's so much more than we ever wanted to do and it's great, then I really think like, oh yeah, I've done something cool for them. It's, it's good to be aware of that. And creativity and narcissism correlate from the research, the little bit of research that I've read, like, because you're in your head and think about what you want to do, what you want to create. And then sometimes we work with people who are crazy <laughs> on the narcissistic spectrum, right? Because everything's on a spectrum. But just to do a little bit of creativity, you're going to be a little bit self-involved or thinking about how you're going to change the world, which is quite an arrogant thing to think, really, mm. because world does, the world doesn't need it. The universe doesn't really need us messing with it too much um Lydia thank you so much like I, I just think there are so many people right now contemplating where to work for a lot of people underpins a bigger question that they might avoid how to be a human mm. how do I want to live how do I want to spend this century and it is amazing how many options that especially people in their 20s and 30s have that the generations before did not have and I, I just hope that you know, you and your peers, even if you've identified as someone who needs to move around a lot, it's not about having one thing that you work at forever. I just hope you can all find really fulfilling pockets of, of that career that's going to end when you hit the age of 40. <laughs> what a sign off. Good luck, everyone. <laughs> Lydia, where can people find you on the internet? Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Lydia Taylor. You can also find me on a YouTube, which is coming back to life. And now I've said it out loud, I'll have to hold myself to it. But yeah, I've talked about startup life on there and I'm moving into talking about freelance life now. And that is Lydsey, L-Y-D-S-I-E. Um, and yeah, always, you know, drop me a message on LinkedIn. If I can help, I most certainly will, because as I said, I, I like that little ego boost of helping someone out. You do, you do. <laughs> Everyone is going to reach out being like, Lydia, you are such an amazing interviewee. <laughs> or your Love strategy that. is so amazing. And then, you know, asking for stuff that you don't want to give them. Uh, Lydia Taylor, I really appreciate you being here today talking about how strategy is everywhere, but where do I go? Uh, best wishes with everything. And, and honestly, I appreciate you letting me have a little bit of fun. Sometimes I do serious interviews, but I, I think I needed to have a little bit of a laugh today while also feeling a little bit laughed at. <laughs> but thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at Sweathead. Sweathead.